0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Ian Bartholomew. The History of England from the Accession of James II by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Book One, Chapter Five, Part Six. While his small fleet lay tossing in the Texel, A contest was going on among the Dutch authorities. The States-General and the Prince of Orange were on one side, the Town Council and Admiralty of Amsterdam on the other. Skelton had delivered to the States-General a list of the refugees whose residence in the United Provinces caused uneasiness to his master. The States-General, anxious to grant every reasonable request which James could make, sent copies of the list to the provincial authorities. The provincial authorities sent copies to the municipal authorities. The magistrates of all the towns were directed to take such measures as might prevent the proscribed Whigs from molesting the English government. In general, those directions were obeyed. At Rotterdam in particular, where the influence of William was all-powerful, such activity was shown as called forth warm acknowledgements from James. But Amsterdam was the chief seat of the emigrants, and the governing body of Amsterdam would see nothing, hear nothing, know of nothing. The High Bailiff of the city, who was himself in daily communication with Ferguson, reported to The Hague that he did not know where to find a single one of the refugees, and with this excuse the Federal Government was forced to be content. The truth was that the English exiles were as well known as Amsterdam, and as much stared at in the streets, as if they had been Chinese. A few days later, Skelton received orders from his court to request that, in consequence of the dangers which threatened his master's throne, the three Scotch regiments in the service of the United Provinces might be sent to Great Britain without delay. He applied to the Prince of Orange, and the prince undertook to manage the matter, but predicted that Amsterdam would raise some difficulty. The prediction proved correct. The deputies of Amsterdam refused to consent and succeeded in causing some delay. But the question was not one of those on which, by the constitution of the Republic, a single city could prevent the wish of the majority from being carried into effect. The influence of William prevailed, and the troops were embarked with great expedition. Skelton was at the same time exerting himself, not indeed very judiciously or temperately, to stop the ships which the English refugees had fitted out. He expostulated in warm terms with the Admiralty of Amsterdam. The negligence of that board, he said, had already enabled one band of rebels to invade Britain. For a second error of the same kind there could be no excuse. He peremptorily demanded that a large vessel, named the Helderenberg, might be detained. It was pretended that this vessel was bound for the Canaries. But in truth she had been freighted by Monmouth, carried twenty-six guns, and was loaded with arms and ammunition. The Admiralty of Amsterdam replied that the liberty of trade and navigation was not to be restrained for light reasons, and that the Helderenberg could not be stopped without an order from the States-General. Skelton, whose uniform practice seems to have been to begin at the wrong end, now had recourse to the States-General. The States-General gave the necessary orders. Then the Admiralty of Amsterdam pretended that there was not a sufficient naval force in the Texel to seize so large a ship as the Helderenburg, and suffered Monmouth to sail unmolested. The weather was bad, the voyage was long, and several English men of war were cruising in the Channel. But Monmouth escaped both the sea and the enemy. As he passed by the cliffs of Dorsetshire, it was thought desirable to send a boat to the beach with one of the refugees named Thomas Dare. This man, though of low mind and manners, had great influence at Taunton. He was directed to hasten thither, across the country, and to appraise his friends that Monmouth would soon be on English ground. On the morning of the eleventh of June, the Helderenberg, accompanied by two smaller vessels, appeared off the port of Lyme. That town is a small knot of steep and narrow alleys, lying on a coast wild, rocky, and beaten by a stormy sea. The place was chiefly remarkable for a pier which, in the days of the Plantagenets, had been constructed of stones unhewn and uncemented. This ancient work, known by the name of the Cobb, enclosed the only haven where, in a space of many miles, the fishermen could take refuge from the tempests of the Channel. The appearance of the three ships, foreign-built and without colours, perplexed the inhabitants of Lyme. And the uneasiness increased when it was found that the customs house officers, who had gone on board according to usage, did not return. The townspeople repaired to the cliffs and gazed long and anxiously, but could find no resolution of the mystery. At length, seven boats put off from the largest of the strange vessels and rowed to the shore. From these boats landed about eighty men, well armed and appointed. Among them were Monmouth. Gray, Fletcher, Ferguson, Wade, and Antony Busey, an officer who had been in the service of the Elector of Brandenburg. Monmouth commanded silence, kneeled down on the shore, thanked God for having preserved the friends of liberty and pure religion from the perils of the sea, and implored the divine blessing on what was yet to be done by land. He then drew his sword, and led his men over the cliffs into the town." As soon as it was known under what leader and for what purpose the expedition came, the enthusiasm of the populace burst through all restraints. The little town was in an uproar, with men running to and fro, and shouting, A Monmouth! A Monmouth! The Protestant religion! Meanwhile, the ensign of the adventurers, a blue flag, was set up in the marketplace. The military stores were deposited in the town hall, And a declaration setting forth the objects of the expedition was read from the cross. This declaration, the masterpiece of Ferguson's genius, was not a grave manifesto such as ought to be put forth by a leader drawing the sword for a great public cause, but a libel of the lowest class, both in sentiment and language. It contained undoubtedly many just charges against the government. But these charges were set forth in the prolix and inflated style of a bad pamphlet, and the paper contained other charges, of which the whole disgrace falls on those who made them. The Duke of York, it was positively affirmed, had burned down London, had strangled Godfrey, had cut the throat of Essex, and had poisoned the late King, on account of those villainous and unnatural crimes, but chiefly of that execrable fact, the late, horrible, and barbarous parricide such was the copiousness and such the felicity of ferguson's diction james was declared a mortal and bloody enemy a tyrant a murderer and a usurper no treaty should be made with him the sword should not be sheathed till he had been brought to condign punishment as a traitor the government should be settled on principles favourable to liberty all protestant sects should be tolerated the forfeited charters should be restored Parliament should be held annually and should no longer be prorogued or dissolved by royal caprice. The only standing force should be the militia, the militia should be commanded by the sheriffs, and the sheriffs should be chosen by the freeholders. Finally, Monmouth declared that he could prove himself to have been born in lawful wedlock, and to be, by right of blood, King of England, but that, for the present, he waives his claims, that he would leave them to the judgment of a free Parliament and that, in the meantime, he desired to be considered only as the captain-general of the English Protestants, who were in arms against tyranny and popery. Disgraceful as this manifesto was to those who put it forth, it was not unskillfully framed for the purpose of stimulating the passions of the vulgar. In the West the effect was great. The gentry and clergy of that part of England were indeed, with few exceptions, Tories, but the yeomen, the traders of the towns, the peasants, and the artisans were generally animated by the old round-head spirit. Many of them were dissenters and had been goaded by petty persecution into a temper fit for desperate enterprise. The great mass of the population abhorred popery and adored Monmouth. He was no stranger to them. His progress through Somersetshire and Devonshire in the summer of sixteen eighty was still fresh in the memory of all men. He was on that occasion sumptuously entertained by Thomas Tyne at Longleat Hall, then, and perhaps still, the most magnificent country-house in England. From Longleat to Exeter the hedges were lined with shouting spectators. The roads were strewn with boughs and flowers. The multitude, in their eagerness to see and touch their favourite, broke down the palings of parks, and besieged the mansions where he was feasted. When he reached Chard, his escort consisted of five thousand horsemen. At Exeter, all Devonshire had been gathered together to welcome him. One striking part of the show was a company of nine hundred young men, who, clad in white uniform, marched before him into the city. The turn of fortune which had alienated the gentry from his cause had produced no effect on the common people. To them he was still the good duke, the Protestant duke, the rightful heir whom a vile conspiracy kept out of his own. They came to his standard in crowds. All the clerks whom he could employ were too few to take down the names of the recruits. Before he had been twenty-four hours on English ground, he was at the head of fifteen hundred men. Dare arrived from Taunton with forty horsemen of no very martial appearance, and brought encouraging intelligence as to the state of public feeling in Somersetshire. As yet, all seemed to promise well. But a force was collecting at Bridport to oppose the insurgents. On the 13th of June, the Red Regiment of Dorsetshire Militia came pouring into that town. The Somersetshire, or Yellow Regiment, of which Sir William Portman, a Tory gentleman of great note, was colonel, was expected to arrive on the following day. The Duke determined to strike an immediate blow. A detachment of his troops was preparing to march to Bridport, when a disastrous event threw the whole camp into confusion. Fletcher of Salton had been appointed to command the cavalry under Gray. Fletcher was ill-mounted, and indeed there were few charges in the camp which had not been taken from the plough. When he was ordered to Bridport, he thought that the exigency of the case warranted him in borrowing, without asking permission, a fine horse belonging to Dare. Dare resented this liberty, and assailed Fletcher with gross abuse. Fletcher kept his temper better than any who knew him expected. At last, Dare, presuming on the patience with which his insolence had been endured, ventured to shake a switch at the high-born and high-spirited Scot. Fletcher's blood boiled. He drew a pistol, and shot Dare dead. Such sudden and violent revenge would not have been thought strange in Scotland, where the law had always been weak where he who did not right himself by the strong hand was not likely to be righted at all, and where, consequently, human life was held almost as cheap as in the worst-governed provinces of Italy. But the people of the southern part of the island were not accustomed to see deadly weapons used and blood spilled on account of a rude word or gesture, except in duel between gentlemen with equal arms. There was a general cry for vengeance on the foreigner who had murdered an Englishman. Monmouth could not resist the clamour. Fletcher, who, when his first burst of rage had spent itself, was overwhelmed with remorse and sorrow, took refuge on board of the Helderenberg, escaped to the continent, and repaired to Hungary, where he fought bravely against the common enemy of Christendom. Situated as the insurgents were, the loss of a man of parts and energy was not easily to be repaired. Early on the morning of the following day, the 14th of June, Gray, accompanied by Wade, marched with about five hundred men to attack Bridport. A confused and indecisive action took place, such as was to be expected when two bands of ploughmen, officered by country gentlemen and barristers, were opposed to each other. For a time, Monmouth's men drove the militia before them. Then the militia made a stand, and Monmouth's men retreated in some confusion. Gray and his cavalry never stopped till they were safe at Lyme again, but Wade rallied the infantry and brought them off in good order. There was a violent outcry against Gray, and some of the adventurers pressed Monmouth to take a severe course. Monmouth, however, would not listen to this advice. His lenity has been attributed by some writers to his good nature, which undoubtedly often amounted to weakness. Others have supposed that he was unwilling to deal harshly with the only peer who served in his army. It is probable, however, that the Duke who, though not a general of the highest order, understood war very much better than the preachers and lawyers who were always truding their advice on him, made allowances which people altogether inexpert in military affairs never thought of making. In justice to a man who has had few defenders, it must be observed that the task which, throughout his campaign, was assigned to Gray, was one which, if he had been the boldest and most skilful of soldiers, he would scarcely have performed in such a manner as to gain credit. He was the head of the cavalry. It is notorious that a horse-soldier requires a longer training than a foot-soldier, and that a war-horse requires a longer training than his rider. Something may be done with a raw infantry which has enthusiasm and animal courage, but nothing can be more helpless than a raw cavalry, consisting of yeomen and tradesmen mounted on cart-horses and post-horses, and such was the cavalry which Gray commanded. The wonder is, not that his men did not stand fire with resolution, not that they did not use their weapons with vigour, but that they were able to keep their seats. Still, recruits came in by hundreds. Arming and drilling went on all day. Meantime, the news of the insurrection had spread fast and wide. On the evening on which the Duke landed, Gregory Alford, Mayor of Lyme, a zealous Tory, and a bitter persecutor of nonconformists, sent off his servants to give the alarm to the gentry of Somersetshire and Dorsetshire, and himself took horse for the west. Late at night he stopped at Honiton, and thence despatched a few hurried lines to London with the ill tidings. He pushed on to Exeter, where he found Christopher Monk, Duke of Arbmal. This nobleman, the son and heir of George Monk, the restorer of the Stuarts, was Lord-Lieutenant of Devonshire, and was then holding a muster of militia. Four thousand men of the train bands were actually assembled under his command. He seems to have thought that, with this force, he should be able at once to crush the rebellion. He therefore marched towards Lyme. But when, on the afternoon of Monday the 15th of June, he reached Axminster, he found the insurgents drawn up there to encounter him. They presented a resolute front. Four field-pieces were pointed against the royal troops. The thick hedges, which on each side overhung the narrow lanes, were lined with musketeers. Abmal, however, was less alarmed by the preparations of the enemy than by the spirits which appeared in his own ranks. Such was Monmouth's popularity among the common people of Devonshire, that, if once the train-bands had caught sight of his well-known face and figure, they would have probably gone over to him in a body. Abmal, therefore though he had great superiority of force, thought it advisable to retreat. The retreat soon became a rout. The whole country was strewn with the arms and uniforms which the fugitives had thrown away, and had Monmouth urged the pursuit with vigour, he would probably have taken Exeter without a blow. But he was satisfied with the advantage which he had gained, and thought it desirable that the recruits should be better trained before they were employed on any hazardous service. He therefore marched towards Taunton, where he arrived on the 18th of June, exactly a week after his landing. The course in the Parliament had been greatly moved by the news from the West. At five in the morning of Saturday the 13th of June, the King had received the letter which the Mayor of Lyme had dispatched from Honiton. The Privy Council was instantly called together. Orders were given that the strength of every company of infantry and of every troop of cavalry should be increased. Commissions were issued for the levying of new regiments, Alford's communication was laid before the lords, and its substance was communicated to the commons by a message. The commons examined the courtiers who had arrived from the west, and instantly ordered a bill to be brought in for attainting Monmouth of high treason. Addresses were voted assuring the king that both his peers and his people were determined to stand by him with life and fortune against all his enemies. At the next meeting of the Houses, they ordered the declaration of the rebels to be burned by the hangman, and passed the bill of attainder through all its stages. That bill received the royal assent on the same day, and a reward of five thousand pounds was promised for the apprehension of Monmouth. End of part 6